five. Hey, everybody. We are now in the green room and we're talking about TikTok. Just kidding. We're not going to be doing that. Hey, we're going to do introductions with our awesome guests. I've got our super guest host, Liz Miller. She's here back again, our producer, Elle, and of course, some amazing guests. So, Chris, where, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, I'm coming in from Redwood City, California, just outside of San Francisco or in the heart of Silicon Valley. And hopefully, we're talking about post pandemic and the workforce and ways we can all thrive. Ah, yes. Very, very important. Caitlin, what are you doing? Where are you coming in from? I'm coming in from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and I'm hoping to talk about how when employees thrive, uh, when employees flourish, companies thrive and really understanding the humans behind the work. Yeah, it's awesome. We're getting a double dose of what's Sense important the in the future. Right? Yeah. The Human capabilities in the world of AI skill. How does that work? We're going to find out more. So, all right. Well, back to you, Elle. Let's do the count. All right. So three, two, one. Hey, everybody. I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research and with my awesome co-host, Liz Miller, today. She, as you guys know, is the excellent CX expert, whisperer, CMO whisperer, and more importantly, a VP at Constellation Research. And I'm here with an amazing set of guests today, and we're going to be kicking it off. Hey, Liz. What's happening? I, it's it, it, Vala takes a break, and I just come in, you know, like I'm coming in hot to talk to Caitlin. I'm, I'm just excited to be here. Well, hey, we're going to have definitely shortened bios today, but it's going to be all fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so welcome, Caitlin. We've got Caitlin McGregor, the CEO of Plum. You know, she's been passionate about finding people's potential. So she's been building two businesses for other people. Now she's founded Plum. And but the you know essence of this is really to figure out people's potential. What do agile enterprises and successful employees need? How do you match these people to the jobs that really matter to them and help them thrive? So, and of course, Caitlin's been super passionate about supporting women, reaching their full potential, and believes that the best way to inspire people is leading by example. So Caitlin's a regular speaker at Women Entrepreneur Events, a champion of Move the Dial, initiative dedicated to increasing the leadership of women in tech. And Caitlin was selected by the Springboard Enterprises New York City as one of the top 10 businesses led by women. You can follow her at Caitlin McGregor. So Caitlin, Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, oh very it's so cool. Good you're here. So listen, I'm gonna um this is part of the joy of hosting for Vala. I get to be greedy and have the first question. <laughs> I get the first question. Caitlin, here, okay. Six million dollars. 
you have just announced $6 million in funding during one of the most turbulent economic times out there. I think if you were just kind of passing that note to someone in school, they'd be like, no, liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Amazing stuff. What do you think, why do you think you were successful, especially in this environment? Yeah, I think raising funding is never easy, but you're right. These have been exceptionally challenging time, which makes our round even more validating. You know, our investors really share Plum's vision that when employees flourish, businesses thrive. I think post-COVID, we have more understanding that if we aren't supporting the people that actually drive our have a growing business. And what's really missing is data to understand where people are going to perform the best, you know, how to ensure quality higher, and more importantly in this environment, how to really retain employees. And retaining employees isn't about saying, oh, they have this, you know, they've done this before, they went to that school. It's about how to ensure that they're using their innate talents, their ability to innovate, communicate, work well with others, and that they're in the right roles at the right time to really allow that company to flourish. And we are really using the science of human behavior, industrial organizational psychology to scale that data across the entire life cycle from hiring to employee development, internal mobility and succession planning, identifying leadership potential. And so our investors really see that this is the data that's missing to be competitive and successful in 2023. Wow. So how does it start? So what do you need to do? I mean, is it, does someone take a test? Does someone get interviewed by someone? Do they play some games? Do they work themselves in scenarios? Right? Because sometimes you don't know like what talent is in you. And a lot of it's really trying to figure out some of these, maybe they're nonverbal things, non-obvious signals. So what do you do to track that stuff? Yeah. So it really comes down to what are those innate behaviors that really make you exceptional, that make you love doing a podcast versus somebody else that might make them terrified. So oh. it's, a, it's a universal 20, 25 minute untimed assessment that looks at people's personality in a way that it can't be gamed and is based on, you know, leading edge, you know, best practices on being able to measure people's priorities. It's looking at problem solving ability not language or math, but how can you solve something that's brand new and social intelligence, which is like EQ, but more scientific, really understanding how to solve people problems. And that's where we get to the root of, you know, what your top talents are. Is it execution or persuasion or innovation and providing that data to the individual so that instantly they have that data to be actionable for the job they're in right now or the future job they're looking for and to start developing coping strategies and ways to ensure they don't get burnout because they're not using those things that are very draining too often. But, but can it tell, like, for example, that you like to work in teams or that you abhor teams or you're the person that likes to come in after a crisis or you're the person that doesn't want to avoid any crisis or changes like that? I mean, are you able to capture those types of details? Yeah, absolutely. But really the secret sauce of what makes this so revolutionary in 2023 is understanding how somebody matches to a role. Traditionally, uh, to understand how somebody matches to role A, B, or C has been has in the past required really expensive consultants. Like I'm talking 140 hours of analysis for a single role that costs 20 to 25,000. Like that just doesn't scale across an organization. So we what we've been able to do is in just eight minutes quantify, automate that job analysis to understand: Do you need somebody? that's really innovative? Or do you need somebody that works well with teams? Or do you need somebody that, you know, they're gonna be able to resolve conflicts? And that's where you can kind of surface that people, despite yep. what they've done historically, 
can really flourish and thrive in brand new careers and brand new areas and to understand where to upskill people. You know, not everybody will be successful after upskilling. How do you understand in advance that return on investment? And it comes down to the things that, you know, really are innate. These are things that, you know, day to day are going to make somebody outperform their peers and stay longer in the role. But you're working with, I mean, you're working with organizations like Scotiabank and Manulife and Whirlpool. I mean, you've got some like literal household names, right? Like So so these are really big organizations. And it's it's super interesting when you're looking at that role. But you also mentioned something, you know, things like succession planning, things. So what does this start to look like for the organization? Because I love that it starts with the person and it starts with the job. But how are they then using this across, whether it's that life cycle to you know, improve what those pathways are? What does it look like for them? Yeah, it starts with really understanding every single employee. I mean, the dream world is that when you have an open role, you should be looking at your own people first and saying, hey, can we fill this by empowering somebody internally before having to bring somebody externally? The other thing is really looking at your bench strength of who are your future leaders? We know that there's historically this problem of hiring people that look like all the leaders ahead of them, and that's not necessarily future-proofing your organization. So this data can also predict if somebody's going to be successful as a future leader, a people leader, if they're going to enjoy supporting individuals, or are they better as a subject matter expert? Should they be invested in becoming your best software architect? So it's really about understanding the right paths to people to put people on. It's about breaking down silos and realizing that somebody who's an underwriter for six years may actually be your best product manager if you just gave them the opportunity. And we're seeing all of these amazing success stories. You know, Scotiabank increased their diversity of underrepresented minorities by 60%. Whirlpool oh. increased by 77%. We're seeing massive ROI by basically screening in people and having conversations with people that you never would have if you had started with where did they go to school and where did they previously work? And this is so important in the age of chat GPT where you can just upload a job description and a resume and say, make me the perfect resume that screens all this stuff. It's really about getting to that, you know, beyond a bag of keywords into really understanding those talents and, and democratizing access to industrial organizational psychology. So everybody's getting value from this data. Wow, I'm never gonna be employable. I used to do that all the time with Resumex. I put in all the keywords, put them into sentences just to see who gets hired and who doesn't. It's kind of hilarious, right? But uh, yeah, I think that goes away. I'm not um, hearing but, how you gamed the resume system. Like I can't, like this can't be part of our discussion with Kate. I would just take just keywords me. that people were looking that were hot, whatever was in, <laughs> mash them all in through a random resume and you get called, it's amazing. And like, sometimes you can make up fake names and, and people would call you back. It's like, oh, this is great. Like now we know what you're looking for. Okay, you know, it's, you, you don't care about what's going on. You just want these keywords. So well, people but, hey, aren't but, saying anymore. That's the crazy thing is if you get hired into a role and you're not being treated like somebody that is exceptional, right. that's really yep. moving yep. the business forward, people are leaving faster than ever. Even in an economic downturn, this is the thing that you know people keep forgetting is that people aren't restricted by geography anymore. They have the power to go anywhere they want. So what are companies doing to step up and really understand how to retain that person. And it comes into tapping into where are you gonna really allow that person to be their best selves and develop them to be that best selves and give them opportunities that no one else would mm. understand them better. 
But let's be clear here too, right? This this assessment doesn't necessarily look at your skills, right? In terms of like what technical you know, prowess you might have. Are you a good writer, right? You know, can you think, are you an expansive thinker, right? That kind of stuff. It doesn't do that, but it finds the, um, it finds which roles actually fit more of your persona type than anything else. Is, is that correct? So, yeah. And it's looking at, just to be clear, this data is four times more accurate at predicting on the job success because you can, you know, you can look at a developer that knew how to do Ruby on Rails five years ago, and that was really, really hot. Nobody cares about a Ruby on Rails developer. Yeah, yeah where's my Python developer? Darn it! Yeah, the shelf life of hard skills is just diminishing. So, what's going to matter long term? Performance is not about those hard skills. Performance is about these soft skills, and it's about getting those right, and then upskilling and building in those those hard skills on top of it. Can can I can I code for culture? Like like a company's culture, their persona, the type of people like that 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 are trying to attract, or is that something that the assessment has, can't do yet? So it's all about is it job relevant? So there's very strict employment laws about this. We can't just say we want everybody to be innovative because we're a startup and we want everybody to be out of the box thinkers. You may not want an innovative accountant. May not be job relevant. May I do like going to jail. Out of the box. <laughs> If it's job relevant, we capture that in our eight-minute assessments. If it's mm. actually part of the requirements of the job to be successful at your company, and that's why we don't use a one-size-fits-all. You know, being successful in sales at one company does not translate to the next company. It's like KPIs. Right. We don't borrow KPIs from a competitor or from five years ago. So in eight minutes, you get that tailored response for what success looks like at your company. So it's there, but within the you know within the boundaries of what is appropriate and job relevant. Are you finding though that some of these conversations are there, or at least kind of understanding and having the data, not only about what's job relevant, but then also that data and insight about your employees, about how they're, you know, how how that job relevant hire then flourish, like kind of that ongoing data collection. Is that also then, you know, changing the way your customers are actually recruiting and retaining their employees? Because I think that with certain headlines and over the past few years, you know, whether it's quiet quitting, you know, everyone, like all, all of the things, right? Like everyone's quitting and then everyone did it loudly and then everyone did it quietly. We kind of go through these phases. We're in economic phases, but it's really had to change. And you hit on it earlier. And, and I, I would love for you to expand on it, right? We, we hit on these threads of wanting to capture these moments, whether it is understanding that diversity does have an impact on our, on our economic, you know, out trade, all of these things. How does that actually change the way? How does this data change the way companies are recruiting and retaining? Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing it in the very first step. When we have, you know, if it's internal mobility, if it's a talent review, if it's hiring, we typically are rushing to a short list of people that we can have that structured interview with, that we can have a human conversation with. And we have been plagued by starting that process every single time with looking at, do they know the coding language I know? You know, <laughs> have they done this historically? We as humans are trying to de-risk who we're having a conversation with by looking at past behaviors. And so what happens is when you open up the aperture and you start screening in people based on, I need somebody innovative to run with this brand new project, who are the most innovative people that jump out of bed in the morning and that's what makes them fulfilled, that's what comes naturally to them. If I start at the top with the people that are driven by innovation, 
I have a completely different shortlist of people I'm having conversations with. And we know all the diversity stacks say just by having a shortlist of more diverse people dramatically increases who gets hired at the end. What we're doing is changing that shortlist of who you're having conversations with. Because what happens is we put all these fillers in. I need 10 years of experience. I need them to have this past experience. I need them to work for a competing logo. But when you have a 99 match and they have five years of experience, all of a sudden you're like, well, I could have a 60 match with 10 years of experience or a 99 with five years of experience. It changes the conversation yeah. and allows you as a human to connect those dots in a new way. Wow. I'm looking for people with 10 years of metaverse experience. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> but does it also change, does it also change the way we start to maybe even define diversity, right? Because I think that we also tend to, we when we start to talk about diversity, we tend to kind of think of it in very set check boxes as well, but we're not necessarily looking at it might be diversity of thought. It might be diversity of age. It might be race. It might be, it, it might be, do you like learning? <laughs> like if you're someone who's never going to learn, you're never going to get past Ruby. Like you're never, like you're never getting past that. 100%. Does, yeah. Has it, have you seen it start to change how your customers and how the companies that are working with Plum actually embrace a maybe even more tangible and meaningful definition or, or at least are more comfortable with it. Cause there are also some people who aren't comfortable with the concept of diversity. Absolutely. We've seen the greatest place for this with leadership potential. Traditionally assessments that have been used on leadership potential are only given to the top 10% director level and above already you've weeded out most of the diversity because people have moved on to the competition instead of rising in, in the ranks in that company. And so what happens is by this one assessment that people complete, we can layer on and say, hey, do they have those foundational dimensions that they may not be in a leadership role yet, but will they thrive at supporting others? Will they be a great future leader? They may have zero experience, but can we get, get them really early in their careers and start nurturing them on that managerial people leader track? And that's where it dramatically starts to change. You know, we know that by having more diverse leaders, then it attracts more people. It's this is this domino effect. And so it really starts with, let's start where we have the best diversity in the earliest entry level roles and start identifying those leaders right away. But that requires that every employee has this data. But, and so the question is, well, why would somebody complete an assessment? It's not to find out, am I gonna be selected for a high potential program? Or it's really about how do I as an individual get benefit? This data is really their own personal professional development guide to tell them how to start their own journey from a bottoms up perspective. How do you empower that employee to start that journey, to empower them to raise their hand simultaneously with realizing this future bench of leaders? And that along with just screening in people into that hiring process, be it internal mobility, it's having dramatic impacts uh, in those diversity, like real, real change. Love that. Wow. We're talking about job hoppers versus lifers. All right, we can see what happens on a nine box. You know, that'd be pretty cool. Um, so, so what happens in a world of AI? Can I run your personality test? Like have my bot take it and see what they're really like? Because we're going to have bots and AIs that are going to be very, very different in personas. So. Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, there's no right or wrong answers. Everything, it's like an eight hour day. You can't get yeah. through everything on your to-do list. What are you going to spend the most amount of time on? And in an ideal world, what would you delegate to somebody else? If you have a bot take it, you may be in a position that 
you're spending 80% of your time on something that is going to take you a lot of energy and you're going to be burnt out in three months and gone anyway. So the first part is we designed this and it's proven by third parties that you can't fake or game it because Darn. you're so low prioritizing, you know, your right. time on I'm time. done. I'm done. So, I'm not getting a job again. Not for you. Yeah. Combat the gamification that we're going to be seeing more and more with things like chat GPT. Like, I think this is giving you objective data that's proven yeah. by real science to understand that human and to understand those soft transferable skills when all the other data I'm worried we're not going to be able to trust because, you know, I can tell ChatGPT to say all the right things on my behalf and to weave a, a plausible story. So I think it's about that gap between who are we bringing in to have that real human conversation and the most efficient an effective and scientific way to get the right people into that conversation. So some time back, you guys were on the cover of the Sunday New York Times business section, and it basically said it was a personality test. That doesn't sound like it at all. You're doing something more than that. I mean, it was a great article, but 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 what what? How do we describe this category? Yeah, that's a really great question because when most people think about personality assessments, they're thinking about Myers Briggs that was developed in World War II to help men re-enter the workforce so they could work with women. Like, you know, like any field, we've had huge evolution. The last 30 years, there's absolutely no doubt of the gold standards for doing all this. And it really comes down to, you know, some call it a psychometric assessment because it's the measurement of human behavior. Others just say it's a behavioral and cognitive assessment. The reality is, is that no, ma no matter what label you're trying to, to put on, it's really these innate components that you don't really change over time. You don't, they're hard to learn and evolve. We can develop coping strategies, but like, these are the things that are your foundation. When we think about building a house, you don't go and build a house on a marsh. You know, you don't go and, and, and build it. It's our foundation of everything. They we do. I mean, we they do. We build do. new coastal so, waters and mudslides. And... Right. Yeah. Like it happens, yeah. but never, never in California. <laughs> I love it. Well, Caitlin, do we have time for another question? Oh my gosh. Like wait, we've been having so much fun talking that I'm like, oh God, sorry. Um, you have done a ton of work and have been recognized really as a, a woman who is a leader, who is uh, charging ahead and, you know, multiple successes. A lot of times when we see those like advice lists of like, you want to, you know, you want to become the next woman leader. It's always things like work harder. You know, it's like, you just like, like the number one and you're like, that can't be the answer. That just can't be the answer. When you are kind of giving that advice to the next generation of just, can I curse on Disrupt TV? Bad beep CEOs. There, I did it. What are you going to tell, you know, the, the folks out there? It's my daughter's birthday today. She's six years old. What advice do you have for that generation of leader who's going to come up in a very different world where people do expect that self-determination even within their jobs? They're going to expect those pathways for organizations to give them success, but they're also going to be looking at those leaders. What's your advice? It's so interesting because I, for years, quoted the statistic that like when a woman sees a job post, she'll only apply if she feels like she has 10 out of 10 of the traits, whereas a man might apply if he feels like he's got like three or four on the list. Well, Ray will make up the list. Like Ray, Ray was uh, Ray was applying to like a hundred percent because he's making up everything. Exactly. On the list. So there we go. I didn't realize as a woman CEO, I kept kind of feeling like when I was promoting myself and my company 
I always had this modesty, like we don't have all 10 things on the list. We, we only have four or five. And so there was always this kind of like, I didn't want to over, you know, beat my chest. I didn't want to be the, one of those egotistical, you know, startup CEOs. And they would kind of make me puke when I see that it's all, you know, smoke and mirrors. Like I wanted to really, especially because there's so much science behind what we have to do. I always latched on to what was 100% factual. And when I talk about myself and my company, it was always in this very factual lens. And 18 months ago, I hired a chief revenue officer out of the US who was very familiar with this space, decade so experienced. And he's like, Caitlin, this is the best product I've ever represented. Why aren't you saying how amazing this is? And I had to learn from him over the last 18 months how to have swagger as a Canadian woman CEO, yes. I had to learn from, you know, my CRO, how to have American swagger and it matters and it makes a huge difference. We are having so much success with our customers and the more we, you know, promote them and talk about how amazing they are and really say, we are the leading talent assessment platform. You're not going to solve this with a bag of keywords. You need this data and we are the only ones that can provide it at scale with a positive user experience. It's changed the game. So what I say to, you know, every little girl is like, you need to be your biggest champion. And if it's, you know, really talk about where you're going and where you're going to, what you're going to achieve. And even if you're not there yet, talk about it as you've, you've already accomplished it, because that's how the rest of the world talks. Caitlin McGregor, not modest at all, from Canada, yes. the CEO of Plum. Just kidding. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Kate McGregor. And of course, congratulations on all your success at Plum. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Thanks, Caitlin. Happy Friday. Oh my Happy God. Happy Friday. Swagger. I don't think my daughter's going to have to. I got to, I got to, I got to admit, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure my daughter's lacking on the swagger. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you never, you got to build that confidence in kids really, really early. Yeah. But, she's, uh, she's over indexed on swagger. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> she's just woo, like that. Per she would take that test and it'd be like, ding, ding, ding. Like, all the way on the side. The trick, Liz, is how to keep her with her swagger as she gets yes. because that yes. is seen so much. And, and Caitlin, what an amazing guest! And I'm so glad I got to sit in on that. Yeah, and I'm just jumping We're right lucky. in the middle of it. Not at all. Yeah. We're lucky here, Chris Shipley, the author of the Empathy Advantage. So, and I've known Chris probably for over what? Actually, I've read her stuff for over three decades. She's been documenting, influencing, predicting the impact of technology on business and more importantly, society. So, but as a journalist, she's covered everything in the tech industry from leading publishing companies and more importantly as an analyst she's figured out who the startups are who are the hot startups and of course helping them actually figure out a launch for their market making products but more importantly she's actually advised tons of early stage companies on positioning business modeling and innovation practices and here we suddenly have an amazing work on human and organizational challenges talking about what's happening in this economically driven disruption. And so we're here with Chris Shipley, author of The Empathy Advantage, and you can follow her on C. Shipley. So very, very cool. You were early on Twitter, obviously. I, I, I was, and I'm probably early off Twitter. Oh, I'm still there, I'm still lurking a lot, but uh, Twitter's changed a ton. And so just to sort of reinforce that I can be really disruptive, I wanna go back, Liz, and tell you first, happy birthday to your daughter. Oh, thank and you. Secondly, just nurture that as much as it might dr drive you super crazy, nurture it because girls generally are, are conditioned by the time we hit 
you know, sort of puberty to that, be quiet, settle down, don't be so bossy. Mm -hmm. And if she can hold that swagger through those critical years, she's going to rule the world. So good luck to her. I I couldn't agree with you more. And thank you so much for that. And I will share that um, it is, I passed down something that it was my dad would would always say it to me. My dad used to tell me um, that he didn't care at all what I was going to be when I grew up. I just had to work every single day to be the best at it. So that if I wanted to be a hooker, I had to be the best one I could be. Now imagine (laughs) a grown adult saying this, to like a six, seven-year-old kid. And you thought it meant fishing. You would see people falling in the streets, right? But in my mind, I thought what he meant was the person on a fishing boat who put the like the worm on the hook because we used to go fishing a lot when I was a kid. So I was like, okay, dad would be cool if I, dad thinks I could work on a fishing boat. That's awesome. So I, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, oh my God, what was he telling me? But it was that kind of that was that the the audaciousness of that was has was something that I was raised with for sure. Yes, it's so, awesome. We we're passing it on to her. But it's great to have you here because it's not about me and my aspirations to have odd jobs. <laughs> no, it's great to be here. You guys are so much fun, and I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. And the last conversation was awesome. Caitlin is is fantastic. Right. Amazing, amazing. But she brought up something, and I kind of want to bounce off of something she said and ask it of you, because I would love to get your perspective on this. Because again, I get to steal the first question because Ray Ray can't stop me. He's learned this by now. So the pandemic, lots of changes, lots of drastic changes. I think we talk a lot about the changes that are happening in the workplace. We talk, you know, there's lots of conversations around what has happened, what's going on, what's actually changed. (laughs) Oh man, big, big question and a little question both. So you know, people, we felt this collective experience of the pandemic and we come out the other side, we think, oh my God, everything's different. And I think what we misunderstanding maybe is that a lot, what the pandemic did didn't change everything. It just amplified everything. The, you know, you t- we were talking in your last segment about the great resignation. Well, that started in 2009. People were quiet quitting and actually quitting, voluntarily leaving their work um, in a trend line that, that was peaking in about uh, 2000, it dropped right after the, the, as the, the start of the pandemic. And then it bolted up in 2022 and still through or 2021 and 2022. So quiet quitting or, or the great resignation that had already happened, right? That was already happening. Um, we saw all kinds of technology moving really fast into the workplace. Now, what the pandemic did was take five years worth of technology, digital, technology adoption, digitization, and compressed it into about three months, right? And so that was a huge acceleration, not necessarily a change, but it accelerated that timeline. Here's where I think the real change is and the people maybe don't notice, right? Because they think, well, we got through that existential crisis, somehow we survived, ready to, let's go back. Let's go back to the way it was. In my place, we're never going back anywhere. Right. We are in now what people talk about is new normal. I like to call it the now normal because the pace of change is not slowing down. The slowest pace of change you're ever going to experience in your life is right in this moment. It's only only going to get faster. And so in that environment, you look at, you know, what what's normal right now in this moment? Because we know that tomorrow or next week or next month, 
this normal is not going to be there anymore. It's going to be some new normal. So how do we continually adapt to that new normal? And I think the, one of the amazing things about the, you know, if we want to be, you know, sort of silver linings, the gifts of the pandemic were that they helped us understand things like the need to be highly adaptive, right? The world changed. Things started turning inside out and upside down. And so we had to adapt and we were able to do that. And we should all take a deep breath right now and say, wow, I survived this. And look at me, look what I was able to do. Look how I was able to adjust to this difficult time and get through it. And if I could do that through this existential crisis, how am I going to be able to do that through the rest of my career? Because that's, I think, the, 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 it should give us confidence to know that we can continue to adapt and learn because we just did it in a really major way for about three years. Ray, you're you're on. This is I'm going to say it. I no, love this you. is huge. Oh no, this is huge. So, and uh, when we think about this shift that's going on, workers are now more empowered. Uh, they're uh, in a better position for now, right? The economy could change at any moment, right? But that empowerment actually comes with a very, very different uh, mindset. And uh, how are these workers now more empowered than before? And we talked a little bit in the past, right, about you know them being able to live anywhere, but there are other factors uh, that have come to bear. Oh, absolutely. So you know. I would guess sort of in, if, if you pulled most uh, managers in the, you know, in, in, in 2019 and you said, what did you think, what do you think about work from home? Could you imagine having an entirely distributed office place? They would say, no way. It's just not, that's not going to happen. I need to see my people. We need to come together to collaborate. We're better as a team when we're all in the same workplace. We're never going to do that. And then March, 2020 comes along and everybody had to do it. Right. And so that, that was really challenging, clearly, for a lot of workers, for a lot of, of leaders. But what happened in that period of time, especially when you layer on that there was um, you know, remote learning and health concerns, and we were all trying to figure out whether and how to get groceries and do we need to wipe them down with, with Clorox before we can you know, eat our bananas, we were kind of all going through that all at the same time. And so workers... And, and organizations kind of had the compassion to say, listen, here's what you need to get done. Um, yep. Here, by, by the way, here's the FedEx box of the stuff you need to get that work done. You wanna- <laughs> Good luck. Chair, we'll, we'll help you with that. Um, but, but listen, do what you need to do. If you need to, to uh, you know, sit with your child through a, a, an online learning lesson, or if you wanna work late so that you can be running some errands in the day, no problem, just get your work done. Organizations gave their workers two things. They gave them autonomy and they gave them trust. And that gave workers the agency to figure out how to do their work and to, to perform yep. in a way that was optimized for this kind of reshifting, recentered life that's focused on you know, the individual and the family and then built work around it. If you've given somebody those gifts, it's really hard now in, in 2023 to say, you know, that was going to take it back. We're taking it all back. <laughs> Please install this keyboard here. And I need you to come in so I can see you work. And, and by the way, you need to do that between these hours because that's the rules now. That's, that's where we are now. That's where you're seeing so much discomfort with, with workers. Workers saying, no, you know what? I just went through this incredible thing that reshaped my understanding of where work fits in my life. And if yep. you can't fit around that, I'm going to go for someplace else. And I think that's been the, that is the that's the permanent change of the pandemic. So much else was was a, an accelerant, 
But that real change is that workers are now empowered to say, listen, I, I built my life. I used to build my life around work. Now I'm going to build my work around my life. And yeah. you don't undo that. Yeah. But I think it's it's interesting because you talk about empathy as well. And, you know, and that that it's really one of those things that uh, this new workplace or this now workplace, let's let's even extend it to that. This now workplace um, requires that more empathetic approach to leadership and that more realistic approach to leadership. But I think one of the funny things that I tend to hear a lot of, certainly when I look at, you know, when people talk about customer experience, you know, and how we engage with the customer, we need empathy. But what actually comes out as sympathy as opposed to empathy, um, where they're like, oh, I feel sorry that you have to do this, so I'm going to let you. And it's it's this weird kind of mental model and conversation that comes out that actually has very little to do with empathy or having the capacity to display it. So when you talk about this empathy and this approach to leadership, A, what are you really talking about? Like, what do people actually need to hear? And what's the cost of not doing it? Yeah, so great, great questions both. Um, you're absolutely right. I think people believe that empathy means I have to be nice. And and that's not empathy at that's all. That's not true. That's not true. And, and it, it may be an element of it, right? But it means nope. to be a little nope. bit more kind. But empathy without action is just platitudes, right? What we're advocating in the book, Heather McGowan, my co-author and I, is really that you you have to get to know the people who work for you. And that's that's a lot harder than just giving them a to-do list, a job description, and marching orders. If you really know the people who you who work for you, if you understand where they're coming from, what their challenges are at work and maybe outside of work, then you have the ability to tap their intrinsic motivation. What is it, and, and Caitlin was talking a little bit about this too, but what is it that drives them? What are their passions? What, is, what are their interests? Where are their skills and capabilities that maybe you didn't even understand you had on your team? Once you get to know someone, you can then use that, that knowledge to actually enhance the, your relationship with them, their relationship with the rest of the team, and really drive a greater degree of performance and, and build out the capabilities and the collaboration of your team. The risk of not doing it is that the, the worst thing that can happen is that you have somebody who's really dissatisfied and unhappy, but who stays in your workplace, right? Because that employee is underperforming, not happy, collecting a paycheck, nope. not, not a good thing. Um, the next worst thing is that they'll leave, right? And now you're, you're in a place where you're back into that, that recruiting, um, you know, kind of vicious cycle of trying to, to recruit and train and drive all the productivity out of that person until they quit. So you can recruit and train and drive all the productivity out of the next cog that you put in the machine. I think that's the fundamental difference from where we went into the pandemic and where we come out is an understanding that human beings are actually these amazing creatures that can do phenomenal things for your business and add phenomenal value if you you understand that they are assets in your organization and not just that old trope about all the assets go down the elevator at night but they're really if i invest in these people if i really understand who they are if i give them the the capacity the skills the learning the the space to do their best work toward a an aligned purpose i have got a rocket ship if I decide that people are just people and I can just grind them out um, and replace them, then I've got this perpetual hiring machine. And that's not a very interesting value-rich business. 
And I think that's the fundamental shift is that we now understand that that's actually people who are coming to work and people who are making us better and people who will be aligned and shoulder to shoulder with AIs and other technologies that as they are able to be more human are going to build more value into our organizations. You know, it's some great principles. I mean, we built our company on a lot of these principles, uh, really focusing on the individual um, and rethinking of the workforce and, and rethinking what an organization could look like. Um, you also talk about rethinking leadership and, and what, do you have to do to rethink leadership in a way to figure out how to unleash this empath advantage, right? There's something here about this empathy advantage. And, uh, and, and I think, I, I guess a lot of folks might be uh, not, not really aware as to what that would be, right? What those advantages are, how they can actually tap into that uh, in their leadership potential and, and inspiring teams. Yeah. Well, we talk about in the book about these, these shifts, right? The first is a mind shift, mindset shift, right? Which is, yep is that your people are not these assets to be managed, right? These, these are, they, they are, um, I'm sorry, not the kind of cogs. You're not, um, you're not managing people, you're empowering people. And if you can make that shift and re understand that the difference is not driving productivity, but driving um, learning and creative creativity and enhancement that, that you actually begin to tap into the, again, the in, intrinsic motivations that bring people to work and, and have them contribute. I think the other another uh, sign is that you're moving from a place where your employees are competitors with one another to where they are collaborators. And that's the difference between, you know, am I driving people to perform so that they can outperform the other guy and get the employee of the month parking space or, um, you know, be be the salesman of the year, but and rather recognizing that our our in the competitive model, I want to, as an employee, keep all my assets to myself. I want to keep my Rolodex to myself and my skills to myself and my knowledge to myself because that's how I beat the other person. In a collaborative environment, I'm additive and I have to share what I know with, with you so that we can solve a problem together. And so shifting people from that, we're not no longer competitors, but we're collaborators and we're going to work together to build value. I think that's a tremendous shift in leadership. Um, and, and not hard to do, right? It's, it's about saying no one of us knows everything required to get this job done, to tackle this challenge or to create a new opportunity, but collectively we have more than enough to be very successful and we can do it faster. So let's go, let's become a collective and not a competitive team. Chris, I found the title for your new book, The Death of the Employee of the Month Parking Spot. <laughs> I was, I'm thinking, wait a minute, there is one? Hey, like, I was getting a little pissed over here. Like, I'm so sorry, we don't have those here. We're a company, so yeah, maybe we talk, can have we them in the better. We heard that title, but they said it was too negative. Too negative? Uh, you don't have all the answers, right? There's that idea that you used to, you know, leaders used to be this authoritarian, yep. you know, this very locked in, like, I got here because I was the best at everything that you do. Um, so therefore, I have all the answers. And it was when I when I read that, I kind of started laughing because I used to tell all of my teams when I when I worked at a job where I had a large team, I used to tell them that it's not my job to have all the answers. It was actually my job to have all the questions. But I, but I had to learn how to ask questions without assuming I knew the right answer before I asked the question, right? Because there's a difference. There's a difference when you ask a loaded question and when you just ask a lot of questions. How, how do leaders make that shift? Because 
I think I watch people try to do it and it it's it feels really uncomfortable um, to move from that spot of like, I'm the leader, ergo, I know all the right things. And by the way, everyone, you're doing it all wrong, right? To being that leader that can be that leader on top of a collaborative environment, because that's also a hard shift to make if you're not ready to make that change. It's, it's one thing for the team to change. I think it feels like another thing for the leader to change. It's it's hard. Let's be really honest, because we were we to your point, Liz. We came up with this to, in order to be the boss. You have to know how everything works. You got to be smarter than everybody else. You got to work harder than everybody else. And and then you you get to be the boss, and you can tell them all what to do. And that's what we many of us kind of grew up with. We built our careers on you know bosses who were were authoritarian and trying to please them and and to to rise up the ranks. And the the shift, as you point out, is now it's not my job to know everything. It's my job to enable you to know more. It's my job to, to, to help you um, collectively as a team really work well together. It's my job to be more of a coach and a mentor. And that's, that's a big shift, but it's interesting. It was when you make that shift and you are willing to say and be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know, but let's go find out together. The relief that you feel to be able to admit I don't know everything, but I've got a plan and we're going to find out together how to how to do this thing, how to address these issues. That is so empowering for the leader. If you can let go of that idea that I have to know everything. I mean, what stress is that? Right. I've got to know everything in a world where I can't know everything. That's that's, that's a, an awful game to play. It's way too so much. Say, yeah. I'm really good at exploring. So let's go on an expedition, guys. Let's go figure this out now. That's the kind of leadership that that everyone wants to follow along because everybody is curious. Well, let's go find out this thing together rather than, please, sir, give me the answer. I need to hear this from you. And I think everyone's begging you to make that office. position, right? So, so it. it empowers everybody and it empowers the leader. And I know that a lot of folks are you know, kind of, it's a little bit hard to let go of the way we always did things, but the way we always did things won't work in a really quickly changing you know, environment. Chris, so, I'm feeling I'm feeling nostalgic for the 80s, 90s founder CEO, tech CEO. I don't know. I, don't know if this anymore. I think we're in 40-year cycles. We're coming we're back. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's going to point. cubes and uh, the, the technologist true. geek runs. No, I'm just kidding. Well, and here's the thing. We're not going to cubes, right? Because we're, we're, I'm looking at our windows here. I'm not sitting in a cube. You guys aren't sitting in cubes. No. We're sitting at home, right? And we're having Shh, a Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> we're having this interesting conversation and we're learning from each other and there's going to be times when it makes sense like let's all get into the office and let's sit together because we have something to work on together that's another shift for, for leaders that i think is going to be really challenging because you go from being that kind of command and control boss to being this expedition leader who says listen i want you to go do your parts of the puzzle in a place an environment that's going to be really productive for you but there are going to be times when we need to come together and when we do that, we're going to do that with real deliberate purpose. And yeah. so you turn yourself into not the, the guy sitting at the head of the table running a meeting, but yeah. the expedition leader running a curated experience that brings people together for purpose. And, it, you know, meetings, I mean, some people in my experience, right, are really good at preparing for meetings. Most people just show up for them. Could have been an email. It could have been an email, Chris. I'm telling you right now. You have to prepare. You have to think, what do I really want to get out of this? What should my people know coming into it? And how do I distribute those that information? And then what are the exercises we're going to do to try to get the best out of people? 
that's a phrases really on, phrases on a future tombstone. It could have been an email. But speaking about email. that, there's this thing yeah. that you guys are talking about is what is the difference between having a resume mindset and a eulogy mindset? I feel like I'm taking something out of Stephen Covey, right? You know, begin with the end in mind. Like, sure. Uh, well, that, you know, that's, that comes from, from a, a New York Times uh, op-ed written by David Brooks. It was a brilliant piece and uh, written in, I'm not exactly around 2000. 12, 13, 14, sometime. Yep, Look yep, yep, yep. It's a great yep, read. Yep, yep. And no, it's, it's an really, awesome read. I've read that before. Yeah, so you know it. So so it basically is saying, listen, your 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 obituary, your resume is all the things you have done, right? It's you know, I, I worked in this place and I did this job, and it's a lot of facts. But your eulogy, these are the stories people tell about you. These are the th the ways that you have touched people and and had an impact that you you may not even recognize. And so if you think about, okay, I just need to put another dot, you know, a little check in my resume, you're going to be focused on, on tasks and, and ladder climbing. But if you think about what is my, what's my eulogy mindset? What do I want people to think about? Or how do I want people to reflect on me when I'm not in the room, when I'm maybe not even here again, that it's about how do I have impact? How do I drive with purpose to align people to work together in a way that gives everyone satisfaction and, 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 creates really interesting and new value. That's the that's the eulogy mindset. And I think when you work from that place, all the resume pieces come together. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about it. Right? You By being real eulogy mindset focused, you're actually doing the other work of building your resume. I, I'd like mine to be done in like rap lyrics. That's my problem. So I, that's how my eulogy, I would really like that to come together. So I'm going to have to figure that one out. Yeah, I wish I were a rapper and I could give you a rap right now. Yeah, I just, I just feel like, I don't know, like dance lyrics, anything like that would be great. So, you know, I think we're talking a lot about like, you know, places, spaces, it's, it's all great. But we, we always kind of have this new generation that's now coming into the fold. Um, I can remember the first time I had to figure out how to pivot managing a generation younger than me um, when they would sit in meetings and I would say something and they'd be like, what's the Brady bunch. And I would want to just walk down the road, just smacking people. <laughs> and that's not allowed in the workplace. I understand that I didn't do it, but we've now got this new generation, generation Z and they are, they are demonstrating a whole lot of different needs than some of the generations that have come before them, but there are also a lot of similarities. I mean, when we look, you know, every other generation, there's usually that common thread what do we need to be looking for? What should we be aware of? But how do we then kind of embrace and incorporate and empower this new generation of future leader now? Yeah. Well, I think there's so many ways to look at that question. First of all, recognize there are four, and in some cases, five generations in, in some workplaces, right? Yeah. Um, who are trying to figure each other out. And, and you, if you default to the kind of kids today, get off my lawn, and, or the okay boomer response, um, you're in, in conflict, right? But if you recognize that each of, these, each of these generations have really different experiences, and, and yeah, it's frustrating that, that they can't name all the Brady kids, but... Um, but Jan... <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. You have to, you recognize that I didn't, I didn't have the experiences. I mean, I, I went through the same timeline, is 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 Gen Z? I, mean, I experienced 9/11, but that was not the first time. I mean, that was the first time in my life that I you know, it was among periods of life of these kinds of major events. I was also barely alive and cognizant of JFK's assassination or Martin Luther King's assassination. So I'm old enough to have had these sort of formative, changing events. 
Gen Z, that was it, right? It was, was 9-11 and they've known nothing but conflict and war since. I, you know, grew up in the 60s, 70s, days. We had all kinds of different financial cycles, usually a little longer term, right? These kids, these young people have had, you know, financial crisis after financial crisis after financial crisis. So they understand that. I did not, I was not born at a time when, when the UN said, you know what, you got about 10 years to figure out this climate thing or you're all screwed, right? But they that, said that 10 years ago, darn it. That's their life, right? So... So if you recognize that, these are not people thinking, when I grow up, I want to go to work nine to five every day and buy a house in the suburbs just, and have two precious children. And that's my fantasy 50s life. That's just, they're like, why? Wow. Why? If that I is a really work, critical point. The crisis industrial complex has actually kept our kids and kept the next generation very short term, very on the edge and not able to think long term. values, focused on what they right. want to achieve, right? So if I, I'm going to work for an organization, I want that organization to be committed to climate uh, justice. If I'm going to work for an organization, you know, they can't be, um, you know, doing you know contributing to the war effort if i'm going to work for a paycheck it's not going to be a paycheck it's got to be meaningful or i'm not going to work at all and i think that's yeah. a mindset you know my generation was you never know as my parents would say you know when the next depression is around the corner so save every nickel and and you know buy your house and do all those things that, that came out of the experiences of the greatest generation the silent generation so we're all we have mindsets built by the experiences we had and when you step back from that and rather than like, well, kid, let me tell you about the time I walked uphill in the snow. Uphill, both ways. Both ways. <laughs> exactly. They're like, what are you talking about? Who walks to school anymore? Right. You step back from that, right? That my experience was the right experience. And you say, hey, tell me, tell me what it was like. Tell me what, what do you feel? What, why do you want to be working on this project? Wow. Now it's a learning environment, right? I now understand something. And, if the, and you can get that person to say, well, hey, old man, what was it like back before you had electricity? Yeah. You, know, you, you start <laughs> to have these experiences that actually make you a much greater um, and a better collaborative team because we can all bring those experiences together in a way that creates enlightenment for everyone. Well, we're here with Chris Shipley, co-author of The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce, came out live March 8th, hot off the presses, and available where books are sold. Thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. And of course, you can follow Chris at C. Shipley. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. It's really Thanks, great talking with you. Wow. Amazing. I, what have you learned today, Liz? Man, I have learned that I probably shouldn't have threatened to smack my team for not knowing all the Brady kids' names. But in my defense, they also didn't know who Sean <laughs> Cassidy was. And that oh. just, I was really upset by that one. But, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, think the, I think the really interesting theme between both of our amazing guests today is that, you know, I think there is an assumption that we always know all the answers. Like when you're sitting in that spot, you've had the experiences, you've had the inputs, you've gone through the strife and the struggle, you assume you have those answers. And I think the amazing thing today, as Caitlin pointed out, is we have the data that can actually get ourselves to ask ourselves some very different questions about the types of teams, the types of companies, the types of programs that we're putting out there. And as Chris just shared, um, you know, it should also be reflecting back on us. Like, how are we having to change as leaders? You know, how are we having to change? I mean, for us as analysts, right? Like, how are we going to have to yep. change how we deliver 
our yeah. opinions, our thoughts, our analysis to a younger generation that's like, what do you mean there was a mainframe? Like, like they're looking at us like we're insane, right? What do you mean you can't collaborate in an alternate environment with, you know, 3D? Or, yeah, How why are you relevant? Yeah, why are you relevant? We got ChatGPT. We don't need you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know what? I got I, I got to wait for ChatGPT to catch up. You know, they're they're still about what is it like? I think it's now like fourteen or sixteen months. Uh, yeah, you know, November twenty twenty one. We've got all the expertise after November twenty twenty one. Give us a call. I got fourteen <laughs> months to stay relevant. So call me now, people. Yeah, but. Well, next yeah. week, um, we actually don't have a show. We're at Constellation's Ambient Experience Summit. Liz, tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll showcase who, who our guests oh, are for episode 317 on April 7th. We're going to go have some fun. I mean, we're getting, a, you know, we're getting a room full of, think of this as like CX and EX family and friends, right? We're asking the two biggest X groups out there, folks that are focused on experience, customer experience leaders and employee experience leaders to really come into a room and talk about what at Constellation we refer to as ambient experiences, right? Those, those experiences for your employees, for your customers that should just be there, just there for everyone to experience and enjoy, right? They are bubbling up. They are coming everywhere. Um, this is, you know, this is an opportunity for folks to really come and not only learn from each other, but then really have that opportunity to share what they're doing, share what everyone else is doing, probably ask more questions than tell, uh, you know, tell their leadership, which is awesome. Uh, but we're going to be up in Napa. We're going to be up there for, uh, you know, a full day of content, but then we're also going to be doing some experiences. And I don't know who, thought it would be a wise idea for me to be part of a cooking class where the food that we were cooking was going to be eaten by, well, live human beings. <laughs> we better take some food safety courses. I was but yes, say, we'll like, be at the Culinary Institute of America in Copa, uh, Copia. In Napa, DoorDash, so. Make sure DoorDash is on. Yeah, we'll, we'll have the extra DoorDash backup uh, order. So, But hey, we're back on April 7th. Episode 317 with Bashad Bazadi, Vice President of Engineering, Conversational AI Google Cloud, Tom Davenport, and Al Nitin Mittal, authors of All In on AI, How Smart Companies Win Big with AI. And of course, our own researcher, Andy Tharai. His last name ends with AI. Vice President and Principal Alice at Constellation Research. And of course, it's an all AI episode. So I just I have a new question because did we put this through Plum to find out that we needed to hire people whose names were spelt like their coverage areas. I'm suddenly seeing what happened. Like I'm not understanding. This is awesome. Well, we're going to see them back in the green room. And so with that, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll catch you every Friday. And Vala Asher, we'll be back. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for being Bye, here. Bye, Vala. Missed you, buddy.